Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. Sober Texas Podcast is a recovery podcast without any affiliation to any particular 12-step program, nor are the stories or information shared on here the official view of any 12-step program. They're strictly of the holder themselves based on their own experience, strength, and hope. Today's featured speaker is Garrett S. Garrett is formerly from the Smithville and Bastrop area and now resides as part of the Austin Fellowship. We were really happy to have him speak this evening. So one of the great things about saying yes to opportunities that come up in Alcoholics Anonymous is that sometimes you get to go to different destinations and meet alcoholics you might not otherwise meet in your normal meeting that you go to every week. And so I was uh, up in Oklahoma City visiting some friends in the fellowship there and I was sitting across from a guy and we were having dinner at some TGI Fridays or some place like that and and we got to talking and and I said I'm from Austin he's like no way I'm from Austin I was like what we've never met and so we got to chatting and then um, he invited me out to Smithville to uh, meet and hang out with his fellowship and uh, it seemed the right thing to do to be reciprocal invite him to come hang out with us in Austin tonight so um, what I can tell you about Garrett our speaker tonight is, to me, he is amazing. He, um, he is, puts himself out there. He is in service. Um, at times, I don't know he's entirely comfortable, but he does it anyway. <laughs> and I, I admire people like that, you know, because wanting to and willingness are not the same thing. And if you can break through uh, the wanting to and get beyond that to become willing, you can do anything. So I give you Garrett S. Good evening, everyone. My name is Garrett Stanley, and I'm an alcoholic. Because of the grace of God, uh, a fellowship with people that are willing uh, to pass on this, uh, what they've received, and a book with instructions in it. I've been sober since July 11th of 2008, and I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, Thank you, Solis, for inviting me here. Uh, This is the first time I've been uh, to AA in in this part of Austin. Um, I'm born and raised here. and uh, but I was a South. I'm a South Austin kid, right? So it's like growing up, everything north of the Colorado was like Canada or something. <laughs> so we just never ventured up this way. Um, always heard bad things about the people up here, and <laughs> you know we we're hippies and rednecks down there, and and uh, and we just were in our little old environment, and and. Um, Thankfully, you know, because of Alcoholics Anonymous and fellowships like this, um, I get to expand a lot more than what I used to know in just a little small bubble, right? And and that's that's what I've experienced in AA um, mostly is that you know we're only we're restricted by ourselves, right? If we get out, we go to new groups, we can sit next to new people. You know, I can meet a guy named Jim with two M's um, from Galveston, and, uh, and, and I can hear about somebody getting their eight-year chip tonight. You know, there's new people here from Los Angeles and Florida, and, um, and, and it's, it's those opportunities that before Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have wasted. You know, I'd have been in the bar. Um, I'd have been in my environment. I'd have known the people that I knew, and that was all that I would have known. I wouldn't have been uh, susceptible to learning new things and, 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 and meeting new people and, and, and understanding and getting the perspective of the world around me that I have today. Um, as I said, I, I sobered up in, in 2008, so I just got a little bit over 11 years this past summer. Um, and it's very important for me to always talk about, when I have the opportunity and the honor to talk, um, about where I'm at today in Alcoholics Anonymous and where I'm at now in my life because that has changed. It's changed a lot over 11 years. Um, it wasn't always this way or, or that way or any other way. And, and I used to see these things on the wall and, uh, um, and one of these things was like, this too shall pass, right? And I just used to think that was so hokey, right? Like this too shall pass. And, and, and people always say that like when you're going through like something really bad you know, they're like, oh, don't worry about it. This too shall pass. My first sponsor used to say it when things were going really good. You know, he'd be like, don't worry about it. 
this too shall pass. And it would. It would. And usually that looked like I've been engaged in Alcoholics Anonymous several times. Uh, I got a friend, Gary Kay from North Texas, that tells me after four times, you just have to say several. So I've been engaged several times in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, and my, my, my sponsor no longer feels the need to tell me that this too shall pass. He just makes that understood from the beginning. Um, you know, my, when, when, when I come to these things and, 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 I, and I sit and I listen to people speak and talk and share their experience, strength and hope, um, I, th- I always, I always, I want to make sure that I talk about the similarities, right? I, I want to make sure that, that w- that's what I would start listening for. When I would first start hearing people, I would think about all the differences and, and how I wasn't like this person, or maybe I wasn't an alcoholic, or maybe I couldn't relate, or things like that. And, um, and for me, um, I've been sober, I've been sober longer than I drank, you know? So I don't talk too much about my drinking, but I do talk about it some because I feel like that's how some of us identify. And welcome to the newcomers, you know, I'm, gl- I'm glad you're here. Um, I was terrified when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, it looked a little bit different than this, and I'll tell you all about that later. Uh, it looked a little bit different than this, uh, but I-, I absolutely didn't feel like this is where I needed to be or where I wanted to be. And one thing that Solis just said, you know, wanting to and being willing, man, what I found out in Alcoholics Anonymous is, is that if I pray and I ask God to give me the willingness to do whatever it is, you know what I mean? To be of service, to be a sponsor, (laughs) to do these steps, uh, to go forward in the next day. If I'm just willing to participate, if I'm willing to say, God, you know what? You take this, you do this, things work out. I don't necessarily want to. There's, I'm lazy. I'm a lazy individual. I, I don't want to most of the time. Like, I don't want to go to work every day. Like, I want to hit the lottery, but I don't play it. You know what I mean? But that doesn't mean that I don't want to hit it. You know what I mean? It's like, I just kind of like, man, one day I'm going to hit that lottery. And they're like, when are you going to play? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, I don't know if that's financially responsible to me to do right now. Um, but like I said, I was, I'm, I'm born here in Austin. Um, my father, he's a, a retired master chief out of the Navy. And, uh, my mother is, uh, she's, uh, she was his secretary at the recruiting office, um, in, uh, here in Austin. And, uh, and they met and, and he was, uh, he was 42 and, and she was 20 when I was born. Uh, so there might've been some alcohol involved in there somewhere <laughs> at some point in time. Um, and I grew up in a, in a home um, that I didn't think was, was, was odd. I didn't think there was anything odd about my family um, because it's what I knew. Uh, my mother and my father both drank heavily. Um, we just, we just, they just drank. Everybody drank. Everybody in my family drank. Um, graduations, birthdays, funerals, uh, anniversaries. They, they just drank, you know. And, and the guys would drink over there and, and the ladies, they would they would gossip and, and, and drink over here. And, and, um, and I was just like, man, I can't wait until I'm old enough to hang out with the guys and drink with the guys. But until then, you know, I was the grandson. Um, I could go fetch beers, right? And that's what my grandfather would, would generally have me doing is, is going to and from the cooler to making sure that he was stocked up. And, um, and every once in a while, you know, they thought it was cute. You know, it's, it's, it's 2019 now and social media and the way that you can share pictures and stuff like that. Um, my grandfather might not have been uh, well favored on, on social media now because he thought it was cool, you know, for me to open the beer for him and then take a drink and then give it to him. Right. Like he didn't really see any harm in that. And and nobody else did at that time. You know, I mean, this is late 70s, early 80s. And and, um, you know, five, six, seven year old kid, you know taking the one swig off a beer and, and giving it, it just, it didn't cause, it didn't cause that big of a deal in my family anyway. And, um, and times were good. You know, people were jovial. Everything was fine. The, the, the barbecues were nice and the gatherings were good until they weren't right. 
And my family was the type of family that there was always an until they weren't, right? There was the fighting, there was the name calling, there was the throwing of stuff, there was the knives that were brandished. I mean, it was just, it was, and like I said, it was normal to me. I didn't see any anything that, that was, like threw up red flags to me. Um, obviously there were. Um, I just remember as a kid, my, my mom, my dad, my grandfather, they would go hustle pool in these, um, in these beer joints here in town. And uh, there used to be this place called the Q Club right around here. And, um, and, and you know, I was five, six years old and I just used to sit in the corner and play Pac-Man or Galaga in, um, in the corner. And, and they used to give me like this little, little, like a brandy glass with a whole bunch of those cherries in it. And then I would sit there and I would just eat cherries and play Pac-Man all night. And, um, and I just, I thought I was on top of the world. I really did. And my, my grandfather and my dad would shoot pool all night and they would drink and, and, um, and I would climb into that, uh, into that station wagon with them and, and we would go down I 35, you know, and my dad be hammered and I'd not be in a car seat. And, I, and, um, and, and it was, it, it wasn't a big deal. It really wasn't a big deal. I didn't think, you know, um, there would be fights between my parents that, uh, you know, that would, names would be called and, and my father's white and my mother's Hispanic and, and uh, it seemed like I learned all my racial slurs um, at home before I ever, ever heard them anywhere else. And, uh, and it was, I don't know, it was, you just learn how to deal, right? Like as a, as a, as a person that doesn't even know that they're an alcoholic or will be, you just kind of deal. You just find this way to cope with things, right? Just kind of find a way to bury things down and not feel and, and just make do the next day, right? When you got to go to school and, and all the other kids are going and they're, you know, well rested and everything. And I just got in from the pool hall at 3 a.m. You know, it's, it's just a kind of a different discussion in second grade when, when they're asking you, like, what did you do last night? And I was like, well, you know. Um, you know, I watched my dad and, and some guy have a fight out in the parking lot over a game of, of uh, pool. And um, that wasn't what the other kids were talking about. Around the age of 13, I decided, you know, hey, I want to start, I want to have my place among the men, right? And I started drinking and, and, um, and it wasn't that, I, I, like I said, it wasn't that difficult. It wasn't something that I had to sneak around. Sometimes I hear like people say like they were the black sheep of the family. And I never felt like I was a black sheep of the family because I did exactly what everybody else did, right? I drank and, and uh, later on I smoked and, and, um, and my grades started slipping and, um, and my, my folks were like, what's going on? And, and I'm like, I don't know, you know, it's, it's, it's what it is. And, and uh, the alcohol for me, right, the effect because it talks about in the book that we drink because of the effect that it has upon us. And it didn't make me feel like I was 10 feet tall and bulletproof. It didn't make me feel like I was handsome or I could dance. Um, it, didn't, it didn't make me feel that way at all. But what it did help me do was it made me feel numb. Like I just didn't have to deal with whatever I was dealing with, right? Like I didn't have to worry about the names that were being called between my parents. And I didn't have to worry about whether we were gonna have a place to live or not because you know, bills were always tight, you know what I mean? But alcohol was always there. Um, I, didn't, I didn't have to worry about feeling different from the kids around me because they weren't staying out all night at the pool halls. I didn't have to worry about feeling different like that anymore when I would drink. When I would drink, I would wait and I would, I would yearn for that feeling of numbness that would come upon me. And then I would just be okay, right? Because when I'm numb and eventually would black out, I don't have to be accountable, right? I don't have to know what's going on and I don't have to feel. And if I didn't have to feel, that's where I wanted to be at. Because when I'd feel, I didn't know how to deal with those things. There's times today, I, I know there's times now, I don't know how to deal with the way I feel. So I depend upon my God and I depend upon the people of Alcoholics Anonymous to be open and willing to hear the way I feel and like, hey man, I'm really feeling this, or hey, I'm really feeling that. And that these people in these rooms, they say, hey man, don't worry about it. 
I've felt that way too. And you're going to be all right. And this is what I did. And how about we try this way of doing things and see how that works out for you? Because see, what happens for me before Alcoholics Anonymous is, is that I don't ask people and I don't talk to people and I don't reach out and ask for what do I do with the way that I'm feeling. Instead, what I do is I hear these voices in my head that tell me to do these things. And these things are not the things that I need to be doing. Right. And then around that time, too, you know, I discover girls. Right. And man, it was downhill from then. You know what I mean? Because that became that became everything. You know, that at, at the age of 13, drinking and females was all I wanted. to. That's all I wanted to participate in. That's it. That was it. No more school. No more doing right. No more doing anything. I wanted to be around the women and I want to be around the older women because they can drink, you know. And um, I did what any self-respecting 13-year-old would do at that time that didn't have a job. I would start stealing. You know, I'd start stealing cars. I'd start robbing. You know, I'd, you know, terrorize the people around me. And, uh, and there, there, came, there came this time, me and this guy, we'd been running around for a while together. We're pretty good friends um, you know, when you're 13 and, uh, he, you know, he spent the night in my house. I ate dinner with his parents, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, we did stuff together, went to the movies and snuck out and went and met up with the girls in their back alleys and all that kind of stuff. And, um, what happened was is we fancied over the same gal, right? And, uh, and that's never a good thing, you know? And, and, and for me, one of the ways that I would combat feeling different and feeling <coughs> inadequate or, or, or not a part of or, or equal to, right, is that I would fight. It was always easier because I was so afraid that if I could instill fear in other people, then I would be okay, right? Like, as long as their fear was greater than mine, then I could deal with my fear, right? So I would use that fear that I had as, as fuel, and the only way that I knew how to do that was, you know, fighting, intimidation, doing whatever, right? Me and this guy, we fancied the same gal, and we would fight. And, and um, you know, back then it was just kind of, we would just throw down. And, um, and one night, he was a little bit older than me. He was a couple years older than me. Uh, one night we were at a carnival down in South Austin. And, um, and things, got, things got to where they always got, right? And we're throwing down. And uh, one thing led to another. And, um, and at the age of 13, I pulled out a firearm and I shot this kid. And he was 15 and he died. And um, I was arrested. And uh, here's the thing that still strikes me today, um, 26 years later, is that at that point in time, like, here's a kid, the, the only son uh, um, of his mother and father. Um, he, was, he was going to the liberal arts program there at Johnson High School. And uh, he probably, I mean, he had the whole world ahead of him, right? And, um, and his life has been extinguished. And all I could think about is, man, my life is over. Because it's always been about me. It's always been about me and about how the world doesn't treat me right or if I only had a shot, things would be different or if people would just leave me alone and let me be, everything will be all right. Um, they locked me up. Um, I went to the juvenile there in Giddings for a while, for a couple years. And, um, and I would love to say that that uh, in that process of being incarcerated, that you don't have opportunities to grow and be different and, and change your path in life. That's not the truth. Uh, for me, there, there was every opportunity in there, right? Um, you can go to college, you can get your GED, you can go to school, you can do whatever you want to do, you can learn trades, uh, you can go to substance abuse and all those things. And at that time, I knew, I had a, I had a feeling that alcohol may be affecting my life in some form or fashion, right? I had a feeling that maybe alcohol was what I was using to treat all the things that were going on in my life. That was my God. And uh, uh, there were some, you know, further examples of that because I learned how to make hooch real well. 
Um, because when you're locked up, it's not like you're just totally uh, removed from any opportunity to drink, right? I'm a determined alcoholic. I'm going to find a way. If there's a will, there's a way. And, and I would find that way. And I became very proficient at, at uh, making hooch. And I would, they had these, uh, they had washer and dryers in there because you had to do your laundry. If you cook it in the dryer, right, if you cook your wine in the dryer, that exhaust pipe in there will take the, the fumes out so the whole place don't smell like wine. You know what I mean? And I knew that, so I would always look for the job assignments to where I was going to be around the clothing or the mops or whatever, and I was going to have to do the washing and all that. And... Um, so I drank regularly in there. And like I said, I didn't drink because I wanted to feel better or, or, or have a good time in there. But I just knew that I wasn't going to be able to sleep unless I could pass out. And that's what I would do. You know, I would, I would wait that week for that wine to cook. And as soon as it would, I knew I was going to have that first good night's sleep. I was going to be able to pass out. And black, the blackout would settle over me and I was going to be fine. Um... My sponsor tells me it doesn't take a genius to get out of jail. It just takes time. And eventually they let you out, right? And they let me out. And, and when they let me out, I had the same tools that I had before. I had the same coping mechanisms. I had all that stuff, right? They gave me opportunities. They said, get a job. We'll help you get a job. Uh, there's, there's placements. There's programs. There's all these things that we can do to help you become a productive citizen. And I passed on all of them. I said, no, thank you. I got it. I'm good. And I started doing the same things that I'd always been doing because I couldn't make it good. I couldn't make it right. I couldn't make the pieces come together. So I would start stealing, robbing, selling drugs, doing all those things, right, that I thought everybody did, you know? Um, everybody I knew did them. And, um, and I started messing. I, I, I fell in with the same group of people that, 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 I, that I ran with before. Um, some events transpired. And, uh, and I find myself knocking on someone's door um, on the middle of a March day. And when they, when they answered the door, uh, I pulled out my gun and I shot them seven times. And, um, and I remember walking back to my truck at the time and, um, and driving. And I remember just thinking, I was 17 years old, just turned 17. And um, I was driving around thinking, uh, this is it, you know. Um, Austin was a small town at the time. I mean, I think we had like 100,000 people at the time. And I think there was maybe like four or five homicides a year. You know, crime wasn't crazy. Um, I just remember driving around thinking the cops are going to pull me over and I'm going to pull this pistol out and uh, wave it around and they're, they're just going to be done with me, you know. And that's how it's going to be over with, you know, and then they're going to write big news stories about me. and I won't be on the news and, and, um, you know, I'm a big deal in my own mind. You know, what ended up happening was I ran out of gas in, uh, in Huddle, Texas. And, uh, and at the time, Huddle was like a gas station and that was it. And it was this big concrete hippo there and I didn't have any money and there weren't no cell phones and I couldn't put any gas in my truck. And I just started walking, you know, and, and um, we were talking about it at dinner tonight, you know. When you need a cop, like, there's not one. And when, and when, and when you don't want one, they're right behind you, you know. And, um, and I walked all the way from Hutto to Del Valley in like two days. It took me like two days. And, um, and when, I, when I knocked on my aunt's door, she was like, um, what have you done? What have you done? Um, my face was all over the news. They were looking for me everywhere. Um, except between Hutto and Del Valley. And, um, and I, went to, I went to jail and, um, and I was charged with attempted capital murder. And, um, and they lived, right? And uh, they sent me to TDC for 20, 20 years. Um, they gave me a 17 year sentence. And uh, I just figured that was where I was going to spend the rest of my life. I figured that's where I was going to be. That's where I deserved to be. That's where a guy like me needed to be, right? Um, things out here, I couldn't make work. I couldn't make things work on the outside. Maybe inside, maybe in prison, like maybe I can be somebody, right? Maybe I can do something. Um, and I went in there with the same coping skills and the same thinking and all that stuff that I had on the street, you know? Um, and 
I made hooch and I sold weed and, and uh, participated in riots and I did a whole bunch of bad things to a whole bunch of people, you know, and, and, um, and I was in there for about seven, eight years, I guess. And uh, I had some hooch cooking and uh, this guy comes up to me and he goes, hey man, um, you want to go to an AA meeting? I'm like, you know, like, why you even approach me to go to an AA meeting? You know what I mean? Like, what's wrong with you? Um, that's for those squares and catchouts, you know. And I don't go to no AA. It's like going to church, you know. I'm not gonna do that either. That's that's like a sign of weakness, right? Like, I'm not surrendering to nobody. Um, plus, I got hooch cooking. Like, what, what are you what are you talking about? <laughs> and the first lie that anyone would tell me in Alcoholics Anonymous happened right then. He told me, he said, man, they show movies down there. (laughs) They show movies down there and come on. And man, I hadn't seen a movie in like seven or eight years. And I don't care, like, I don't know how many of y'all have been incarcerated. This is not a thing to do. Don't go verify this information that I'm fixing to give you. If the TV is right here and I'm right in front of it and it's at full volume, I'm not going to be able to hear it. You're just not going to be able to hear it. It's an environment of steel, concrete, yelling, profanities. It's, 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 a, it's a madhouse. And I wanted, I wanted so bad to see a movie. And I was like, cool, man, I'll go to the next one. So I went. There was not a movie down there. Um, there was a whole bunch of chairs laid out just like this, and there was a podium, and there was a guy standing behind it, and that guy was wearing the same uniform that I was wearing, and he was incarcerated with me. And he said, my name is Kevin, and I'm an alcoholic. And he started reading out of the big book. Kevin ended up becoming my sponsor. And the guy that sponsored Kevin goes to the Friday night, her and happy hour meeting, and he's got about 35 years of sobriety. And he's there every Friday night in Hearn. And um, Alcoholics Anonymous had been implanted into the unit that I was at. And um, a lot of people say, well, you know, how does, how does recovery happen um, in jail? And all I can tell you is what happened with me. That's all I can tell you. What I know in there is, is that I just told you that that's a place that's concrete and steel and nothing grows. Everything dies there. Everything dies. Nothing grows. Sunny brought this ivy, right? And that ivy grew, and it was huge. And uh, I have a piece of it in my home today. And, um, and Sonny brought AA to, to uh, the Luther unit, and he started sponsoring a couple guys, and those guys started sponsoring a couple guys, and those couple guys started sponsoring other guys. And uh, what ended up happening in there is, is we had a home group. It was the, uh, it was the last chance group. They had this stupid thing above the meeting that said nothing changes if nothing changes. And before I went to that meeting, I was like, of course nothing changes if nothing changes. You're saying the same thing twice, right? Like, of course nothing changes if nothing changes. And then Sonny would tell me things like, have you changed anything in your life? I'm like, no. And he's like, but every day when you write to your mom, when you hug your dad, you tell him that things are going to be different, right? You know nothing's going to be different. Because you've done nothing different. He used to cut deep, right? He just used to go for it. And, um, and he said, but if you're such a rough, tough young man like you think you are, how about you try these 12 steps that we got laid out? How about you just try them? And this is what I thought. I thought, I thought that I would try these 12 steps and that I would prove to him and prove to everybody else that I would do exactly as it tells me in that book and it will not work because I'm different. I am that bad. I am that far gone that I will never reach the status of being a sober human being. I just, it, it, it won't happen and I'll show you and I'm gonna do it. And I remember I was around step six or seven <clears throat> and I'll tell you what, man, sitting there doing that fifth step with another guy um, incarcerated in a dank, 
Jim, you know, laying it all out there, uh, it's kind of a big deal, you know. And then six and seven come around, and um, and I'm kind of thinking like, man, maybe I don't want to do the rest of this, you know, because I'm not doing the step that I'm in right now. I'm doing the next couple, right? I don't want to make these amends that are coming up. I've heard people talking about them. I don't want to do that stuff. And uh, Sonny tells us, he goes, hey, we got the speaker coming tomorrow. Uh, you might want to be there. Make sure you're there. Bless you. Um, and I'm like, who is it? And he goes, it's a friend of mine. Uh, she's the director of the probation department and Brian. And I heard two things right then, right? I heard probation officer and I heard a woman. And I'm like, can't either one of those people tell me nothing, right? What do they know about being a guy and being a convict and being an outlaw? Like, they can't tell me nothing. But I was like, you know what? I'll go. Because she probably smelled really good. And nothing in there smells good. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I went down to the meeting. And this gal, she's like five foot ten, red hair, absolutely beautiful. And she said, hello, my name is Mickey B. And I'm an alcoholic. And she started telling her story. And what I heard then was, was hope was hope that I could take my life and just become a sober human being. And that would be good enough. And then once I got there, that God was going to give me these things that I would never even dream of. And when I heard her talking, when I heard her tell her story, I just thought for that moment that it was all possible. That it was just a possibility, right? And, and that... That glimmer of hope got me through those rest of those steps, right? And here I am, you know, working 12 steps in prison. Now I'm sponsoring guys. And um, that's kind of weird, right? Like I was thinking, like sponsoring, I'm a convict in there doing time, and I'm sponsoring guys, and we're trying to do the next right thing. Um, and it really became a lot easier. It became so much easier doing time in there when I was just doing the next right thing. You know, I wasn't having to stash my, my wine anymore. I wasn't have to worry about shakedowns. I wasn't have to worry about the next riot or, or, or what town was going to be tripping on another town. It, it just, none of that stuff mattered anymore to me. It was just Alcoholics Anonymous and getting up and asking God. To, I started getting up at 4.30 in the morning because they told me I had to pray, right? And I didn't want people to see me praying because I thought that would make me look weak. And um, I still wake up at 4.30 in the morning and pray. I still do it. I can't help it. Like, if it's Saturday, if it's Sunday and I don't have to work, I'm up at 4.30 and I'm praying. I'm reading my book. Um, it worked. You know, it worked. Um, Sonny also told me, um, AA will not help you make parole. But AA will keep you from ever having to worry about parole again. And he was right. Because I got sober and I stayed in there about another six years. You know, I, I, ended, up, I ended up getting out of there um, before I get there. <clears throat> I guess I've been in there about 10 years. And this is about want to and willing. Well, my, when, when I first did my men's list, right, my sponsor didn't give me this list. And I've heard this said, and I'm not knocking anybody that has but... I've heard people say that they have the amends they're going to make now, the amends they're going to make, you know, first opportunity, and the amends that they'll, they'll never have to make, right? We'll just put those away. My sponsor told me, he said, we're going to make the amends right now. The ones that the people that come visit you, you're going to make those amends right now. When they come see you, you're going to make amends. We're going to have the ones that you write letters to, and then the ones that you, when you get out, you're going to go make amends to them. He said, then we're going to make a list of the people that you will always be willing to make amends to. Because there's obviously some people I can't write, that I can't contact, that I can't reach out to, right, in my life. He said, but if you're ever facing that situation, you have to be willing. And I was like, man, I can tell you I'm willing, right? But am I really? But if all you're asking me is to tell you that I'm willing, sure, man, I'm willing. <laughs> whatever. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you whatever you want to hear. So about 10 years in, they tell me I'm going home, that I'm making parole. And um, 
I get really happy. It's God's will, right? And uh, I give away all my stuff. And, uh, and then they took my parole away from me. And they gave me a two-year set-off. And um, it was a victim's protest, right? Some people got together and said, we don't think that Austin, Texas is going to be safe if Gary Stanley's walking around, and we don't want him coming home. And the state of Texas said, that's easy enough. We'll keep him where he's at. <clears throat> so about nine months after that happens, they bench warrant me back to Austin. I hadn't seen Austin in 11 years. And I'm driving in on 71 in the back of a van, and I see the Frost Bank Tower, and I'm like, oh, man, what is that? Right, because when I left, there wasn't nothing but the Capitol. That was it. I, we didn't have a skyline in Austin. And, um, and they got me downtown at the courthouse on San Antonio Street, and I still don't know what I'm doing. And, um, and I'm sitting in the judge's chambers, uh, handcuffed and shackled. And... Um, and then walks the father of the, the kid I shot. And, um, and all I could think of at that moment, right, that this lady had come in, she was with the Victims Liaison Program, and um, all I could think about at that point in time was, are you willing, Garrett? Are you willing? Are you willing, Garrett? Are you willing? Are you willing, Garrett? Are you willing? And um, because here's the deal, it's like I thought these amends through, but I thought I'd never have to do them. Right? Like, I didn't really think it would ever happen. It wouldn't be real. There's a part in the big book, right? Where it tells you if you're not diligent about these steps, you know what I mean? You're going to drink again. And at that point in my life, I so badly did not want to drink again that my willingness exceeded my want, right? I didn't want to do it, but I was willing. And, um, we sat there and we had a long conversation. Um, I was able to make those amends to the best of my abilities. Um, and nine months later, I was released. Um, I don't know if that had anything to do with it. I don't know. Um, but I came home. And while I was in there, and I, after I'd sobered up, went to college, got a little associate's degree, went to uh, uh, electrical training, um, Got a whole bunch of certifications as an electrician. Um, got home, like in six, seven days, I had a job, right? Had a driver's license, had a job. Sonny made me construct a plan, right? He's like, you can't get out without a plan. You've got to make a plan. So I sat there and I started making a plan. Okay, I got to go to the Social Security office, got to get a Social Security card, got to go to the driver's license office, get an ID card do all these things, I got to go back, get a driver's license so I can get to, to and from work. Um, I got to buy some tools, blah, blah, blah. It's like, how am I going to get any tools? I don't got any money. Man, when you have, when you're in college, like credit cards just send you like credit cards, like they just send them to you. So I charged all these tools that I was going to use as an electrician. And then it was just like, I'll pay it back, you know, when I got this job. So, bam, I mean, Six to eight days, I'm out. I got a job, right? And um, I'm carrying around this little GPS thing with me, ankle uh, bracelet on my ankle. And uh, I really start doing a good job, you know? I really start doing a good job. Um, I'm waking up in the morning. I'm praying. I'm meditating. I'm calling my sponsor. Um, but I'm on house arrest. I can't go to meetings yet, right? Uh, probate, parole office thought, you know, AA, they really can't track you, right? Like those cards, they really can't track you. They don't know who that signature is, right? But they, I'm on the GPS, I'm on all this kind of stuff. I have to go to programs that can be monitored attendance-wise, right? And they're not AA. They're not AA. I don't know what they are, but they weren't AA. And um, so I wasn't going to meetings, uh, but I was going to work and I was, I was knocking it out of the park. I bought a house and I was really doing well. And, um, and I guess I was, it was about six months in and I just started thinking, you know, man, Gary, you're doing a really good job. You know what I mean? Like, this is, this is, this is everything you thought it was going to be, you know, got a truck, got a girl. Um, and, uh, and I stopped praying, you know, I stopped relying on God. And I stopped asking them to give me direction in the morning. And uh, and I, I hadn't drank 
I hadn't drank yet. And um, and parole's putting pressure on me because uh, they're saying that my tracker's saying that I'm not where I say I'm at. And, and I'm thinking, man, nobody's ever going to believe me. And, and I start cooking all these things up in my head. That, you know, it's my word against theirs. Uh, they're going to... I was like, man, I've never even been to Hooters. Like, I can't go back to prison and I've never even been to Hooters yet. You know what I mean? Like, something's got to be... Something's got to be wrong here, you know? Um, so I cut that thing off my ankle and um, packed up all my stuff and, and uh, went to Wichita, Kansas. And uh, not only did I go to Wichita, Kansas, I changed my name to Jose uh, because I thought I could pass for a Jose, which I found out that I could rather easily. And, um, and I started working up there and living up there. And I got a job and I was doing well. And, and, um, and, uh, and I remember I would pass this little holding the wall bar on the way home every night. And, um, and I stopped in once because it says in the book, how about you go out and try some control drinking? <laughs> so I did. And I stopped in this bar and I had a beer and then I had one more. And then I got in my truck and I went home and I said, nobody got robbed. You know, I didn't steal anything. There wasn't no fights. Um, I did it. So I went to work the next day, got off of work. I said, let's try one more time. So I went in there, had two beers, went home. Nobody got robbed. No guns, no knives, no fights. I was like, you know what? Maybe I was just young. Maybe I was just young and, and didn't know, you know, um, how to drink at the time. And, um, and what ended up happening then was, is if you're an alcoholic of my disposition, you know what happens. And for the next two years, um, I lived in a world of chaos, right? And um, I moved back to Texas and um, I ride motorcycles and such and, and raising hell. And, um, and finally, after two years, you know, it's exhausting. It's so exhausting having to lie, cheat, and manipulate every day. It just really is. It will wear you out, you know, because not it, it, everybody is looking for you. You know what I mean? Not just the cops, but everybody's looking for you. And you've got to hide from everybody. You know, I can't answer to my own name anymore. I remember I was walking um, through a, 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 a club of the gentleman's variety and um, and somebody said, hey, Garrett. And I almost turned around and then just kept on walking. And all I could think was is get to the front door, get to the front door, get to the front door, get to the front door. Because I couldn't let anybody know where I was at. Because, of course, they had warrants out for my arrest and all that stuff. And I don't know who it was that called my name. But I knew I had to get out of there. Right? And, um, and two years later, I'm just exhausted. And I'm in Bastrop. I'm riding motorcycles. And uh, I get pulled over by this cop because my bike was a little too loud. And, um, and he said, hey, I'm pulling you over. There's noise ordinance and this and that. And, um, and, I, just, and I, I gave him my, my driver's license. It had Jose's name and information on it. And uh, he came back with a ticket and uh, was going to send me on my way. And I said, hey, man, I got to tell you something. And he's like, what's that? And I was like, that's not my name. My name is Garrett Stanley. And I've got uh, some warrants for my arrest. I said, if you'd like to put the handcuffs on me now, um, I'm okay with that. Um, and he's looking at me crazy. He's kind of a smaller, really small, like Barney Fife looking kind of cop. <laughs> like literally looked like that. And I was like, man, if he goes back and sees my rap sheet, like he's gonna get out of his car with his gun drawn. It might be too heavy for him. He might shoot me. <laughs> and, um, and a couple minutes later, a bunch of sheriffs showed up and they took me to jail, right? And I was thinking, this is it. I'm going to have to go, you know, do the rest of my, my time. It was about five years in prison. And um, that's not what happened. Um, I went in front of the parole board and um, don't ask me how. Don't ask me why. But they said, we're going to give you another shot, man. And we're going to give you another shot, but you got to go to these AA meetings. And I was like, there you go. So... Um, 
I got online, the intergroup. I'm living in Bastrop. And um, I'm looking online, like, where am I going to go to AA meeting at? And this address props up this next door to my house. It's a little white house on Highway 21 in Page, Texas. And uh, it's the Lost Pines group, right? And um, I just had to jump the fence. And I jumped the fence, and I walk in. Um, man, you, I, I look a little different now than I did then. Um, but you just got to imagine, like, I had a bandana on my head, and I got my vest on. I didn't ride there, but I want people to know that I ride motorcycles, you know what I mean? And I want people to know I'm bad, you know? And I walk in, and this room is full of old people. Like, not, not even old like me right now, but like retirement old, you know what I mean? And they don't look nothing like me. They don't talk like me. They don't look like me. They don't drive vehicles like mine. They've got it all together, man. And they said, come in and sit down. And, um, and I did. And uh, they hugged me and they loved me. And they walked me through the steps. And, uh, and I lied to them, you know? I told them that I got sober in prison in 2000. And um, this was in 2008. And uh, I told them I had eight years sober, you know? So I sometimes I tell the newcomers, like if you want long-term sobriety, you know, just walk in and tell them you got a, you know, sober date eight years ago. Nobody's going to verify it. You know what I mean? And they didn't. But let me tell you what, what happens with that. Is that over the course of the next three or four years, like God started giving me things that were above and beyond anything that I ever thought that I was capable of having or possessing or wanting or needing. Right. Gave me love in every aspect of my life. It gave me friends and, 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 and family back. It, it, I mean, everything started happening for the good. But what happened was is when you do that inventory and it asks you, man, is there anything that you need to be discussing with somebody immediately? That lie that you've been telling your home group and the people around you, when you start doing this program properly, it starts eating away at you, right? And for me, like suicide became a better option than telling the truth. Because if I go in AA now and tell them the truth, they're going to kick me out. And if they kick me out of AA, where am I going to go? Because there's no referral system here. There's nowhere else to go to after this place. We are the last stop. And I just remember picking up that phone one day um, and calling my sponsor's wife. And uh, she's about this tall. And um, she's just a beautiful person. And, uh, and I remember telling her, I said, Janice, um, I lied to you about my sobriety date. And... Uh, my sobriety day is uh, July 11th, 2008, and, and um, I just don't know what I'm going to do to make this right. And over the phone, what came was this little voice, and she said, Oh, sweetie, <clears throat> that must have been so hard for you. Like, even at a time when I'm lying to people and, 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 and doing things to them, right? In Alcoholics Anonymous, all they could think about was how it's been affecting me. And what it's been doing to my serenity and to my, to my sunlight of the spirit. Like how much has that been blocking the sunlight of the spirit shining on me? And what ended up happening was I had told a lot of people. And I had to get behind the podium and I had to admit all these things, right? And from that point on, it's just been this upward trajectory. You know what I mean? I've experienced life in a whole way that I thought I would never experience. Things happen to me. Not by accident, I know today, you know, it's because we have a God. And it's because I, I, I'm willing to talk to this God on a daily basis and that I'm, I'm able to listen and to, and to hear God when he talks and to feel God when he's around me. And I can know these things today. And I can know that it's not a coincidence or it's happenstance, it's... It's God. It's God and he loves us, right? Like all these things that I've done in my life, he loves me. And he wants me to do right things and he wants me to help others. So he puts me in positions to where I can do those things. Because I thought my life was never going to amount to anything. 
I never thought I was going to be anything other than some thug in prison. And what God has given me today, my father's 84 years old. And uh, he's still a retired master chief. And he's a very proud individual. And um, over the last six months, his health is, has begun to deteriorate. And uh, he's had to deal with a bunch of illnesses and a bunch of battles. And uh, he's done with them. He's, he's done his best to, to fight um, as hard as he can. And, um, and I really started praying, like, what am I going to do, right? Because this is the man that, that, this is the man that at one point in my life I thought I would never want to be like, right? Uh, because of the things he said, because of the things he did. And um, and I remember talking with my sponsor one day, and he said, man, why, instead of hating your dad, why don't you hate the disease? And um, and I was able to love my father in a different way then. Um, so today, I bought, a house, I bought a house a couple months ago, and um, by the help of some very dear friends, I was able to modify that home and make it livable for me and my father. And um, and I watched my dad on, I got video cameras in my house so I can watch him because he falls a lot. And um, I need to know when I need to call people to go over there. And, uh, and this morning I was making breakfast and my father was sitting in his recliner. And, um, and I told him, I said, hey dad, uh, I'm not gonna be here later on this evening. I'm going to go have some dinner with friends, and uh, I'm going to an AA meeting. And he's like, all right, son. And I was like, um, I love you, Dad. And he's like, I love you too, son. And he's like, I want you to know I, I appreciate everything you do for me every day. <clears throat> and what I want to tell you all today is that I could not be a son to my father. <laughs> I couldn't be a friend to my friends. I couldn't be a coworker to my coworkers. If it was not for Alcoholics Anonymous, for the God that it has given me, and for all the blessings that it has bestowed upon me, and all the things that I've experienced in life. Thank you all very much. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sober Texas Podcast. Future episodes will have additional speakers, but we may also have interviews with folks in recovery on various topics and informational episodes too. If you have a topic you'd like to see discussed on a future episode or maybe a speaker that you'd like to hear featured or maybe even interviewed, please contact us at SoberTexasPodcast at gmail.com or 512-693-7865. Thanks again for listening and have a happy sober day.